to episode 184 of the Cricket Hair Weekly. We're going to start off today by talking about the ISEC report, the ECB's response of which was released this week. Now, ISEC stands for the, the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket, Cricket, and it was the group that was set up um, to kind of independently look at all sorts of equity issues in cricket, uh, among them gender and race in particular. Um, and um, yeah, so the ECB had three months after the initial report was delivered in order to deliver its initial response. Um, it did that this week. Raf, what did you find out? Well, Sid, um, I attended the kind of roundtable press conference, um, which involved the two Richards at the ECB, who I can never remember the difference between. <laughs> um, and Claire Connor as well was there. And they have obviously been tasked um, as the chair and the CEO and whatever um, title it is that Claire Connor holds these days. Uh, is she the vice chair or something? She's very senior anyway. So they, the three of them kind of had to um, lead the ECB's response to this um, quite damning report, actually, um, in terms of what it revealed about the state of English cricket. Now, we obviously talked quite a lot about that when it came out, um, which was back in June. Um, and they've now had a bit of time to go away and come up with a response. Um, and they did this press conference and they answered a few questions. Um, so we're going to focus again, particularly um, on the stuff to do with women's cricket um, and the, the kind of situation for women involved in cricket as well. So not just playing, but also um, in other in other regards. Um, so um, but, but obviously there's some really important um, responses in there in regard to, to race and, and also class as well, um, which kind of, um, you know, the social class stuff kind of cuts across all of this. Um, but in terms of their response to the women's cricket side of things, um, actually, uh, I, I feel a little bit conflicted about the response because it feels a little bit like they're saying some of the right stuff, but the actions aren't necessarily backing that up at the moment, if I may say so. Um, and I think, so first of all, um, obviously the, the big one um, in relation to women's cricket was actually about pay. Um, and trying to uh, bring um, the levels of pay between men's and women's cricket closer together and um, between male and female players. Um, but basically the ECB's kind of um, big headline response to the ISEC report um, had already been announced um, before their official response came out. And they're basically saying, well, we've, we've equalised match fees. Now, we talked in a previous episode about how that's quite problematic because it's not match fees that actually um, kind of can constitute the vast majority of most players' um, overall income. It's about base salaries. And the commission did actually say that and recognise that and say that's not good enough. But the ECB are kind of touting that as their big response to to this recommendation. Well, they've, they've, they've equalised match fees for the international players for the only, international the England players, players only, only basically. Correct, yes. So an England player playing an ODI will get the same match fee as an England man playing an ODI. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, now, one of the key quotes from the um, official uh, response written by the ECB um, is this that I'm just going to read out. For all the progress we've seen, the gap between the value of commercial and media rights for the men's and women's games is still vast. And they're using that justification um, as a reason for why they cannot implement equal pay overall for either international or domestic players at the moment. So basically what they're saying is we don't think women's cricket is worth it. Um, now, obviously, you and I have an issue with that. We, t we take issue with that. 
Um, I, I think um, specifically I would take issue with that for a couple of reasons. The first is how on earth do we know what women's cricket is worth commercially? Um, you know, because everything at the moment, all of the rights are bundled in with the men's rights. We don't really have any idea about what value might be placed on that. Say, were we to have separate governance? Ding, ding, separate governance, Cluxon, um, and for the women's cricket to break away and to try and sell itself to commercial um, companies and broadcasters. So we don't know what the commercial value is. Well, you don't, even, you, you don't even need separate governance for that because, of course, women's, the FA govern men's and women's football, but they've sold the rights for yeah. women's football separately and made quite a decent chunk yeah. of money, whereas the ECB have never made an attempt to sell yeah. the rights for women's cricket separately yeah. because you know, they're too interested in maintaining their cosy relationship with Sky, frankly. Okay, well, you said it, Sid. <laughs> um, so that's the, that's the first point. Um, the second point, and something I actually put on Twitter or X um, this week, is that actually I don't think that pay in cricket in this country does reflect commercial value because, for example, how can you justify... Um, paying Alice Capsey £25,000 to play in the 100 when some random bloke whose name, apologies, I've forgotten, um, but I picked him out because he's basically a domestic player who has never played international cricket and with respect, if we haven't heard of him then he's probably not particularly commercially um, valuable, um, is getting paid 100 k Yeah, there are an awful lot of men with no name recognition yeah, whatsoever absolutely. that are getting paid three, four times as much as the likes of Alice Capsey, yeah. who my 80-something-year-old father knows who she is. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, And I bet if you survey people, everyone who's going to the 100, then Capsey is going to be one of the people who they're going to see. Um, you so should do that survey, Raph. I should, I should. <laughs> Anyone want to pay me to do that survey? Which sounds incredibly time-consuming. But it's one of those ones where common sense tells you that the, you know, that what the results would be and that therefore there is not a direct correlation or really any kind of correlation um, other than in very general terms between um, the pay for male players and the pay for female players. So I'm afraid that just um, using this commercial argument that is, is often trotted out to justify unequal pay in between men's and women's sport, it's just, it's a tired argument and I'm, I'm disappointed to hear the ECB use it, to be honest. Um, I, I th you know, they've had three months and this is the best justification that they've managed to come up with um, to, to continue to justify equal pay, uh, unequal pay. Um, I will say that I think that I'm, um, that they're making, they are making some of the right noises around, okay. around pay now. Um, and so I think that that, and I think that's quite an important shift because one of the things that always made me cross before... <laughs> I'm not particularly cross today. I know that viewers have responded to previous episodes by saying they enjoy seeing Ralph cross. Um, but something that used to make me cross was that actually um, that, that nobody at the ECB even seemed to have equal pay as a goal or as a stated place that they wanted to get to. And that has changed now. They are now saying we want to get there. Um, we actually want to be in a situation where we can make that happen both domestically and internationally we just don't think we can do it now um now obviously i would dispute the, that latter point but i think that um it's important to have that that as a stated goal as an organization you know it's not too 
it's not too long since we actually had senior member of the ECB saying equal prize money is economically absurd. And now that same member of the ECB is coming out and saying, actually, yeah, equal pay should be our goal. And I think that's a really important. And equal shift. prize money is the one thing that has been achieved, you know, you know, within like things yeah. like the hundred. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, just a couple of other points um, on their kind of overall response. I was particularly interested and did ask the question in the press conference about a women's test at Lords, um, which has obviously been something that. The, the commission said that they were particularly shocked to find out that the women had never played a test at Lords. I think I said at the time I wasn't at all shocked. <laughs> um, but it, and if you know anything about uh, the kind of the history between um, the MCC and women's cricket, then you wouldn't probably be particularly surprised. But anyway, um, so I said, is that still on the cards and when is it going to happen? And Claire Connor actually said, yes, it is definitely very much still in the conversation. Um, but it's probably not going to happen now until the next ICC Future Tours programme for the women. The current one expires in April 2025. Um, so actually what we're saying is that we're not going to get a women's test at Lords next summer or the summer after. I think we already knew that we weren't getting one next summer because we already have the fixtures. Um, but it might happen in 2026. Um, or possibly the sort of sound like that. they've kicked the can on yeah, that one as well. well like, they, got, they are kind of saying, um, oh we can't do it in this ICC FTP and I don't really understand why that might be um, because you can just say oh by the way in one of these windows where we've got for a bilateral tour we're going to stick in a women's test at Lords and um, it's interesting as well that they are kind of saying oh yeah we're, we're in conversations with the ICC and the MCC about that but in response to another recommendation of the um, of the ISEC about oh um, the Eton v Harrow match at, at Lords should be abolished they're very much washing their hands of that, the ECB, and saying, oh, no, that's the MCC's remit. That's nothing to do with us. So on the one hand, it's in your gift, the ECB, to take credit for giving the England women a future women's test at Lords. But on the other hand, it's not in your gift at all to have any say in the Eton v Harrow match. Yeah, it does feel like when they when they want it, then the the, the MCC is just, just a part of the ECB, and it's, it's all just one thing. Yeah. And then suddenly, when, when it's a bit awkward, they're like, oh, well, the, the MCC is obviously nothing to do with, nothing whatsoever <laughs> to do with the ECB. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like having your cake and eating it, um, writ large. Oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> Thanks, Sid. Okay, maybe we can have some cake when we finish recording. Anyway, the final point that I wanted to make is actually, um, it's kind of good and bad because it relates to something else they've said in relation to the, the women's cricket stuff, the women's cricket recommendations in the report. Basically, they've said that we're developing a new women's, women's professional game strategy, they're calling it. And that will go from 2025 to 2029. So that's a little way off from being kind of um, fully developed um, and fully implemented. But in that, they've actually said we're going to, within that strategy, we want to, quote, plot the path to domestic pay parity. So that's a little bit measly mouth because plotting the path to domestic pay parity doesn't mean that you're actually going to do it or that you're actually going to achieve it in that 2025 to 29 window. And I'm going to be very interested to see um, what this new professional game strategy looks like um, at when it eventually kind of uh, transpires and, and comes out. Um, I think that it does feel a little bit like you just talked about the ECB kicking the can down the road. It does feel a little bit like they're doing that with some of the women's recommendations because they're going, oh, well, we'll answer that in our new strategy that we haven't managed to formulate yet. 
But, but these, these big questions and these big dilemmas are still going to be there in terms of how do you get the women's region's full representation on the ECB board um, or, or within the kind of heart of the ECB, which they don't have at the moment. Yeah, because that was another thing they say, well, we can't do that. Yeah. We can't really, can't give the region's representation. Because the, of the, the ECB board model. is going to remain, you know, just basically the, the men's first class mm -hmm. counties. Because, of course, the men's first class counties represent women as well, which yes, they kind they of do. do and kind no, of don't. don't. So, yeah. <laughs> In reality, no, they it don't. It is interesting, though, that we've got this professional game thing coming up from 2025. That means only one more season of yeah. the current setup, and then there's going to be another shake-up. Yeah. So we what we think of as regionals at the moment is going to get shaken up again in a year's time yeah. and there are going to be more changes. So that's going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on. What Absolutely. changes are they going to make yeah. to the regional setup? Will the regional teams, as we know them, still exist in you know, yeah. a year's time? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we've talked Who before knows? about the, the whole decision to divorce women's regions from the, the men's counties and how that's actually been... Quite difficult and I think that that is reflected in some of these responses about the ISEC's recommendations about governance because they used to be a kind of recognising that when they set things up they didn't really think about that and now they're being forced to think about it and they're going oh maybe it was a mistake the way we set things up so as you say we shall see. Anyway Sid I know that you have got your own thoughts on pay because it is something that we've talked about um, a reasonable amount recently on the Cricket Her Weekly so do you want to talk a little bit about pay? Yeah, I think the one thing that we need to do actually is to refocus the conversation on pay a little bit. And I think that the, the, the results of the ISEC report are partly why. I think we need to refocus the, the issue of pay, particularly on domestic cricket. Um, it, it remains the case that, you know, your Sophie Ecclestons and your Nat Sivers, you know, the two of the best players in the world, and your Heather Knights, the England captain, they're earning a lot less money than the equivalent men. You know, there's, there's no doubt that that, that remains the case. Absolutely. However, those top England players are now earning a lot of money. Assuming that they play WPL next year, which, um, you know, the, the ECB have been really clear that there's contractual equality between the men and the women now. They've clearly told the men that they can definitely play IPL. Yeah. So that means that there's pretty much a guarantee that they've told the women they can play yeah. WPL. Yeah. Assuming that the top women play WPL and they play the majority of England matches, the top women in England are going to earn half a million pounds next year. Wow. And by, by any stretch, that's a decent chunk of money. Absolutely. You know, it's not the million pounds that Ben Stokes is taking home, um, but it's a very, very good salary. Um, but while that's happening, you know, just down, you don't have to go very far down the scale at all to get to regional players that are still on little more than minimum wage. And we've got players playing you know, matches for England recently, so players like Maya Boucher is still on a regional contract. Yeah. So Maya Boucher isn't earning a lot more than minimum wage, while players at the top of the tree are now set to earn a substantial amount of money. Mm -hmm. So we need to refocus and we need to start putting the pressure less on the international salaries and those, those conditions, because you know, we, we've got to a point there where, you know, people are earning decent money and we need to look at those domestic salaries. One situation that the ECB have created through their, uh, the, the increase in pay to the England women together with things like the WPL is that for a long time, when we, we first set up the England contracts, there was a problem. And the problem was that if you lost your England contract, you had nothing to fall back on. Yeah. Because, you know, you fell back and you were just, you were an amateur, were an amateur again. again. So yeah. people like, when Tash Farrant first lost her England contract, 2019, was that when she first lost her England contract? Mm, Which, whichever like year it was, basically, she had to then go back and she had to get a job. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, someone loses their job, they have to get another job, okay. But it meant that, you know, it's much harder for her to then, you know, break back into the England team. It's much, you know, and we want those people to be carrying on in professional cricket. We, you know, we want... Because we need depth. Yeah, we need depth we need that, underneath yeah. your core of contractors. And ironically, we'll be coming back to this later. Anyway, so we set up the regional system, and one of the things we banged on about about the regional system was how great it was that now, if you lost your England contract, you'd, you'd fall back into the regional system, and you could still be a professional cricketer. But what we've done now is we've created a situation once again where losing your England contract is absolutely catastrophic. Because we've got people that in the England players are now, even the ones that aren't playing very much, still earning a reasonably decent salary, right? They're not earning a half a million pounds a year, the ones that don't play much, they're still earning a pretty decent salary. If you lose your England contract now, you lose your car, which you get as part of, a, as the, they have to pay a little bit for it, but that becomes kind of as part of your, English, deal, your yeah. deal. Um, and you know you lose so a substantial it's, it's, it's amount of salary, a huge pay cut, and now you it? take an enormous pay cut yeah. to get back down to regional level. So what we and that's not like it is in the men's game, right? I mean, yeah, again, you'll take a pay cut if you lose your England contract and fall. But if you're taking a pay cut and falling down to earning only a hundred thousand a year, going off back to play for Surrey or whatever in the men's game, then that's a very different issue to falling down from the England system within the women's game and going back to something that's not an awful lot more than minimum wage. I the same sort of salary that you'd earn if you went yeah. to work in. I the mean, pros. obviously, not all county pros are earning a hundred k. I think you're maybe slightly overregging. But the ones that fall out of the England yeah. system at the top. So, sort of so what we're talking about is a more gradual decline in salary. So let's say you're Marcus Druscothic, you might have been earning up here when you're playing for England, then you drop down a little bit because you go back to being right at the top of the county tree and then gradually towards retirement you might drop down a little bit yeah. further until you're only earning whatever he earned when he was playing in the second 11 for Somerset. That's just an example off the top of my head because it happens to be a male cricketer who I know. Um, but you know, so but it's we're talking about a very steep drop um, that's an absolute drop versus a kind of gradual one, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. and it's, it it means that once again losing your England contract is economically yeah. catastrophic. So Absolutely. I just think we need to refocus the competition about, and we're going to be focusing a lot more on domestic pay over the next couple of years because I think that's where the real problems are now because the top international players are earning a lot of money. I think it's really difficult because what I would say is, um, obviously, I'm a firm believer in pay equality okay so i don't believe that there's any justification for unequal pay for unequal for free equal work okay so that's always been the principle of equal pay since it was enshrined in uk law in 1970 equal pay for equal work so for example in the hundred it can't possibly be justified legally um for the women to be earning so much less than the men and so we what so i find it difficult to say oh well i don't believe that heather knight should earn the same as ben stokes um, which is kind of effectively what you're saying is that actually we need to, um, if we've got a set amount of money for pay in women's cricket, we need to accept that Heather Knight's just going to stay at her current level for a few years because we want that money to go further down to, towards paying, you know, some of her Western Storm teammates a more a, well, a, a higher a higher. I'm salary. not saying that we should we should totally give up on you know trying to get no, equity but, with the at, the at the top levels, but I'm saying that our focus should be on the on the steep drop in the domestic players. Yeah, but I suppose, my, yeah, my, my point is that actually, rather than Heather Knight maybe earning more, Ben Stokes should be earning less because we've got to a point in cricket where those top salaries are just not economically sustainable for the ECB. And so really they need to be waking up to that reality and just saying, OK, I'm sorry, we're going to pay you a bit less so that we can pay the women a bit more. That's clearly what should happen if the ECB are really committed to equity. Whether they've actually got the 
gumption <laughs> to do that is another thing and the, and the signs are not particularly good but um i yeah i do agree with you and i think that actually what's happened in men's sport in elite men's sport is that those those top salaries have got really enormous in a kind of unsustainable way and that's a path that we shouldn't be going down with women's sport but there's also a bit of me that goes yeah but actually i really want the i really want the salaries to be equal um anyway i, I just feel a little bit torn about it i suppose okay um Sid, you mentioned depth there, or we, we talked a bit about depth. Um, I guess that's relevant to another women's cricket um, issue or news um, item that's been going on this week, which is the um, South Africa series against New Zealand. Now, South Africa have had a bit of a, um, a rough or a, <laughs> a kind of up and down roller coaster few months, it's fair to say, but they are currently 2 0 up in their ODI series against New Zealand. Um, what's going on here? Yeah, there's definitely been ups and downs. They had the high of getting to a World Cup final and they got beaten in the T20 series by Pakistan. Then they smashed Pakistan in the ODI series and they're now, you know, um, they're kind of walking all over New Zealand. Um, so, you know, interesting goings on. Um, let's, let's focus on the, on, the, on the New Zealand issue, though, because I think that does tell us something. That, um, you know, what's going on with New Zealand? Why, why aren't New Zealand a better side than... They, they, they ought to be a better side than this, shouldn't they? What's going on? Well, I have a theory about New Zealand that what's going on is that they failed to invest in their domestic system over the last 10 years. So while other people, England and Australia, were gradually professionalising their domestic systems, and don't forget the professionalisation of domestic cricket started in this country with the Kia Super League, you know, so it's a yeah. fair while ago now, yeah, even though we've only had full-time professionals for the last couple of years, whereas New Zealand never did this. Um, you know, and it's because of lack of resources. I'm not saying that they, they necessarily could have done it, because, you know, the even their male domestic system remains quite close to being amateur. It's, not, it's certainly not professionalised in the way that the Indian one or the English one is or the Australian one is. Um, but what's happened with New Zealand, I think, is that because of that, they've got no depth, they've got no players coming through. So the players that are coming through are of a, you know, are not getting the access to kind of those professional pathways, to the coaching, to the resources, um, which the young professionals coming through, which they say there aren't your Alice Capsies coming through, there aren't your Freya Kemp's coming through and your Grace Scrivens and all of that lot. Um, and I think this is starting to come home to roost for New Zealand. You know, New Zealand still seem horribly, horribly dependent. I mean, you know, who was their, their wicket taker? In the, the, I mean, they only took like three wickets in the last match. Two of them was Lear Tahuhu, a player that they literally um, knocked off their central contract yeah. roster two years ago because she was too old. But and there's, there's nobody back. coming through yeah. that's, that's, that's as good. So the older players remain their best players. But as those players' powers start to wane, because inevitably, you know, as you start to push through your 30s, your powers do start to wane, I'm afraid. You know, it's going to happen, Raph. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that. Um, and I'm practically over the hills. New Zealand's lack of investment in, in, the, in the next generation is now coming home to roost. I think yeah, that's what's happening there. I think that's really interesting. And I do think we are seeing a, an increased recognition of that by the boards. Um, I, I think that you know people like Susie Bates and Sophie Devine have been talking about this for a couple of years with regard to New Zealand and saying that that is the issue, that they don't have that investment underneath the national structure. It's difficult because New Zealand cricket is not full of riches and resources in the way that perhaps Cricket Australia or the BCCI are. Um, but 
to return to South Africa for a minute, they have actually recently announced that they are investing in this domestic structure, haven't they? They're going to have, I think it's four um, professional domestic teams underpinning their national structure. And so, and that's a kind of almost a sort of recognition that, well, we got to the final of the World Cup, well done, this is what we're going to do as a result of that. Um, now, it shouldn't be tied to being successful in the World Cup, unfortunately, but in South Africa's case, um, cricket South Africa are now taking it seriously, as you say, and, and recognising that they need to develop that depth and the way to do that is to professionalise your domestic structure. And that's really good um, for South Africa. It's really good for kind of global women's cricket because we want more boards to be doing that. But what's the answer for New Zealand cricket if they haven't actually got the cash to do that? It's a tricky it's one. It's a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, um, I think that's all for today. Uh, we will see you again, same time, same place next week. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. Bye.